Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I wonder how many of you have been following this season of I'm a Celebrity? There's a hand, there's a hand, there's someone, I haven't, like honestly I haven't, um, uh, I never have, never will, but on, <laughs> on the like proper like grown up websites like BBC, Guardian, uh, Telegraph, Independent, whatever, all your mainstream news websites, I'm a Celebrity seems to somehow have filtered into them. And you get these little links that you can click and see what's going on in the jungle and despite not actively trying to follow it I'm still kind of aware what's going on and I've been tempted once or twice to to click and squander 10 minutes reading about the latest antics in the jungle and they're all about Matt Hancock like all of them pretty much he's the one who seems to have drawn the attention in this series now you probably know Matt Hancock was a government minister he ran the health department during Covid he was very influential in making all the the rules for lockdowns and what we were all allowed to do what we were all not allowed to do and then he had to resign in a bit of a a scandal when it was revealed that he'd broke a bunch of the rules that he'd made in order to have an affair with one of his colleagues and there was a conversation in the jungle with uh, Charlene White a TV personality and um, she was bringing before him the complaints a lot of people in the country would have had different people Uh, kind of made Matt Hancock uh, the target for all these feelings about COVID, all the things that we've been through, all the things we weren't allowed to do, the relatives we weren't allowed to see, the suffering that we've all faced by not being able to be alongside uh, our loved ones who've been ill, who've been in some cases dying. Uh, And Matt Hancock became this figure that everyone's like, but he made the rules and he didn't keep the rules. Like uh, The resentment's channeled to him. And so Charlene White raised all these questions with him, like, why would you do that? What is going on? Uh, And do you understand how everyone feels about it? And I found his reply really interesting, because he said this. He said, what I'm really looking for is a bit of forgiveness. What I'm really looking for is a bit of forgiveness. And forgiveness is going to be the theme that I want to talk to you about this morning, Forgiveness, I would say, is one of the most powerful tools that we have available at our disposal to put the world back together again. Our big theme for the term has been the fractures that we see, both inside our own lives and in the world around us. What are they? Where do they come from? And how can God remake a world without these fractures? Forgiveness is one of the big tools in that. But honestly, I I think forgiveness perhaps is the hardest one, or one of the hardest ones, to actually implement and live out. And if you want proof, just look at the reaction that Matt Hancock got to his comment. He says, I want a bit of forgiveness. But then you go on social media and you see how people feel about this. No, he shouldn't be forgiven. You should never be forgiven for what you've done. I could not possibly forgive him because of the suffering that I've been through. These are the sentiments that people express. We don't want him to be forgiven. It feels like he's getting away with it. We want to punch him in the face for what he's done. That's the human reaction. See, kids in school, they're told by their parents, aren't they? If someone hits you, you hit them back harder. We escalate. We get in this cycle of revenge 
and retribution. God's got something a little bit different to show us in Scripture. So I'm going to talk about forgiveness, and it's important in two directions. So firstly, if you at all identify with what Matt Hancock said, that sentiment of what I need is a bit of forgiveness. And honestly, I want to contend that we all should identify with that. We all need forgiveness. And when I look at can we possibly be forgiven? And then I think we all also know what it's like to be wronged. We know what it is for someone to do something to us, to offend us. What do we do with that? Do we carry it inside or do we let it go? So we're going to talk about how we can be forgiving. I'm going to do it through a story that Jesus told. So if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus is going to get into this topic. Now, just to set a bit of context, um, he's just been teaching on restoration of relationships in the church. How if there's a problem with someone, you go talk to them. Uh, If there's still a problem, you maybe draw other people in. And then Peter has asked him a question about, well, how forgiving do we have to be? Like, if someone offends me, okay, I'll forgive them more than once. Is is seven times the right amount? Sounds a bit radical, but Jesus says, no, it's not seven. I actually forgive them 77 times. And he's not saying count it up, and when you get to number 78, you can stop. He's saying just don't think in terms of numbers. Think in terms of the heart to keep forgiving over and over again. (laughs) So... The verses we're going to read are Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. So please do follow along. This is Jesus talking, and he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to pick out three things from this passage in the Bible. And the first one is this, the debt of sin. The debt of sin. So you've got this servant and he owes his master, who's the king, some money. And in my Bible, it says 10,000 talents. I also have a footnote at the bottom of my Bible that says one talent was about 20 years wages for a labourer. So we're going to do a bit of maths now, okay? 20 years wages for a labourer. Now, I don't know exactly what a labourer gets, but a little bit of research is £20,000 a year, something like that. We're going to use that in our sums. 
20 years' wages at that rate is £400,000. And that's what one talent is. He owes 10,000 talents. So we need to do 10,000 times 400,000. And the answer is 4 billion. Okay? So Jesus is telling this story where the servant owes his master four billion pounds. We don't quite get that when we read it and it says 10,000. We think, okay, it's probably quite big. This is ludicrously big. This is childishly big. I can imagine a kid telling the story and they come up with this. Oh yeah, he owes him four billion pounds. He's not going for realism, is he? He's going for something extreme. Why? Why did Jesus choose such a big number to represent the debt in this story? Well, you need to understand what he's doing in the story. He's comparing the debt that this servant owed his master to the debt that we, because of our sin, owe to God. And by choosing a big number, what he's saying is the debt that we owe to God because we have sinned is astronomical, it's vast, it's huge, it shouldn't be downplayed and turned into something small. It isn't a small deal. Our sin matters. That's what Jesus is saying. Sin is that bad. You know, sometimes I worry that we don't get it. Sometimes I worry that when we think about our sin, it's like there in our head, it's a doctrine, it's a thing. We're aware that in theory, we have sinned and there's a problem. But actually, deep down in our hearts, we think, well, by and large, we're basically good people and sin, it's just a secondary thing, it's not that big a deal. I think sometimes we can act like that's the case. We make out that sin is basically like eating that second slice of cake and it's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't, but it's no big deal, really. That's not it. That's not it. And when we think that, we've missed it. Sin is a big deal. And there's a reason why we don't see it, I think. Just do this thought experiment with me. Right? Imagine there's a company. And imagine in this company, the way they act is a little bit shady. So the way they treat their clients isn't good. They're always taking shortcuts. They're, they're cheating. They're not delivering the product as they should. The, the culture of it, they're fiddling the books. They're When they're reporting their finances, they're saying one thing, but the truth is something else. The way they treat one another, uh, there's there's anger, there's competition, there are lies, the truth isn't valued. It's a real toxic company to work in. Now imagine you get a job with that company, and you come in as someone from the outside. How would you feel? What would you see? It would strike you in the face of, oh my goodness, this is awful, and everyone seems to be complicit in it. On the other hand, for someone who's part of that company, who's been part of that company for a long time, who's been part of it developing into what it is, they probably wouldn't see it with quite the same lens that you, as someone from the outside, would be hit by just how problematic it is, because they're used to it, because it's just become second nature to them. There's something like that going on. We live in a fallen world, and we're complicit in a fallen world. And every day, it's the air that we breathe. It's the the thing that we engage with. It seems normal to us that this is how the world is. But imagine you came in from outside, and you never sinned, and there never been any thought that was wrong. You know, our thoughts, they're so toxic all the time, aren't they? The way we think about other people, the way we're always promoting ourselves, the way we um, don't honour God in them, the way our words are always uh, constructing different things. actions that we do, the selfishness that pervades them, the pride. Imagine you were outside and you never sinned and you came into this world. How horrible would it seem? How stark would it seem? It's only because we live in it we don't see the scale of it. 
Well, that's what happened. Jesus came into this world totally pure, totally holy, and he sees the scale of the problem. And this is how he describes it in Mark 7. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is what Jesus sees as he looks on this world. Sin's a big deal. Now, we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. It's not a a cheery conversation starter at a party, is it? Um, Yeah, I think deep down, if you're anything like me anyway, and if you're anything like the people that I talk to, we know something is wrong. We know deep down that there's some kind of... A problem. If you're anything like me or the people that I talk to, this question looms big over life. Am I actually okay? Am I, I, I alright? Is my life fine or, or is it not fine? And we have the sense that uh, that's not an easy question to answer. And it isn't an easy question to answer because in one sense, the answer is a profound yes. You're fine, you're glorious, you're made in the image of God, you're created beautifully, you're knit together in your mother's womb. There's a purpose for your life. Yet in another sense, we have this profound feeling that the answer's no, that something is wrong, that we're not quite where we should be, that uh, that am I okay? It's not a clear cut. Yes, I'm fine. We know there's a problem and we can't shake it. And so we keep coming back to that question, looking for some kind of validation, something that says, okay, yeah, we're fine. And so what happens is we carry these two things. So we carry guilt, and guilt is this sense of, yeah, I did that thing that was wrong, and there there are going to be consequences. Somehow that's going to come back to me. And people express it in different ways, whether they talk in terms of what goes around comes around, or uh, whether they talk in terms of fear of punishment, whatever it might be. But this sense of, yeah, I've done wrong, and so some wrong is going to come back to me. And we also carry shame. It's not just that I've done the bad thing, but that starts to define who I am. And I say I'm a bad person, and I'm seen to be a bad person. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we minimise this uh, perception of sin, why we trivialise it in the way we talk about, is because we're so afraid deep down that if we were to face it, if we were to admit it, if we were to speak it out that this is how things are, it's like this dam would break that we're trying to hold back. We're trying to hold back this sense of maybe I'm not okay if we were to say it out loud, that my debt before God is like four billion pounds, that the whole dam would come crashing down on us and we'd be exposed for what we are. But here's the thing, if we don't, if we won't say it, if we won't face it, it's like this thing, it just sits there in us, and we carry it, and it starts to twist us, it starts to deform the way we live, because we know it's there, and so our life becomes a a, a striving to justify ourselves, a desire to prove, well, maybe I am okay, maybe there's a reason for it, maybe I can explain it away, and we start to act more and more in this fractured way in the world to excuse this thing that we know is there. Well, there's hope for us in the story. Um, You see, you've got this servant and he can't pay. And that's understandable, right? I mean, how many of you, if you owed someone four billion pounds, would be able to just um, like make a little bank transfer and deal with the debt? But again, it's a comparison with our sin, isn't it? I mean, which of us could make atonement for our own sin? Which of us could make payment that we owe to God? What good deeds could we do? What religious acts could we perform that could wipe off the debt of our monumental sin before a holy God? 
And so this servant, he, all his stuff is going to get seized and sold. And then he's going to get seized and sold as a slave. His family are going to get seized and sold as slaves. And that's what's going to happen to him because he can't pay the debt. And so he starts to beg. He gets down on his knees before the king. He says, have mercy on me. Please have patience. I will pay it all back. I promise. Just give me one more chance. As if one more chance is going to help him pay four billion pounds off. But he's desperate. He's clutching at straws. He's looking for anything to have this debt paused or dealt with. And the master looks on him. He doesn't just say, okay, fine, one more chance. He has pity on him. He releases him. And he completely forgives his debt. He wipes it all away. It's gone. It's vanished. Now, I want to share a couple of things about this. And the first one that I notice here is just this king, he didn't have to do this. This debt was truly owed to him. He was under no obligation whatsoever to write the debt off. I wonder if sometimes when we think about our sin before God, it's like we don't get that God's under no obligation to forgive it. Sometimes I think, well, well, yeah, it's fine. God will forgive. It's his job. It's what God does. God is in no way obliged to forgive. And don't think that forgiveness comes easily to God. He can't just say, snap on my fingers, and it's gone. Because that would be to minimise, to trivialise, to agree that it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And so you see in the Old Testament all these uh, elaborate sacrificial rituals. You have to have this animal sacrificed in this way by this person under these conditions. And even then, with all that elaborate ornate ritual where people could only go so far towards the presence of God uh, and the very presence only one person one day a year could go into, even that, we're told in the book of Hebrews, could not wash away sin. No blood of goats or bulls or sheep could do that. There's only one way that sin can be forgiven, and that's the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus. It's through his death on the cross, and that is the only way. There was no obligation for God to forgive, and it's certainly not easy. Here's the second thing I noticed, that forgiving this debt for this king in the story was a costly thing to do. It was a very costly thing to do. Because when you say, I'm going to write off a debt, it doesn't just make it disappear. The king himself has to bear the cost, doesn't he? He's now four billion pounds less well off than he would have been had he been able to call in the debt. He's had to absorb the cost. Forgiveness always is costly. And for us to be forgiven by God comes at a cost. And that cost is Christ. He bore our sins. He took them on himself to the cross. The cost was his life. It was his blood shed for us. That was the cost. And so he took the judgment and wrath of God that we deserved. In 1 Peter, it says, You were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And yet, despite the fact that he didn't have to, despite the fact that it came at great cost, what does the king do? He chooses to forgive the debt. He chooses to forgive. And that's exactly what God has done. At great cost, though he didn't have to, God has chosen in Christ to forgive us. So any of us who put our trust in Jesus, that that sin we talked about, that monumental, vast offence at God, is wiped. It's clean. It's clear. 
And when we understand these two things together, when we understand the scale of our sin, and yet the vast cost that Jesus paid to forgive us, now we get into something powerful. Now we get into something that can speak into even the darkest and deepest of fractures in our world, that can deal with the worst of sins. Let me show you a little case study. This is... These words that I'm going to read are some of the most powerful words I've come across in years. This is from Rachel Den Hollander. Just let me set a bit of context and tell you who she is. So, uh, Rachel was a gymnast. She was part of the American gymnastics system when she was a kid. She was trained up, and there was a scandal that went around in US gymnastics. One of the coaches was abusing some of the gymnasts, and uh, some of them, including Rachel, spoke out about it. They, they were brave. They put their story out there, and this coach eventually went on trial for what he'd done. Uh, and this was at his sentencing hearing. Uh, she said, I'd, I'd like to speak. I'd like to say something as he's been sentenced. During the trial, he'd referred to the Bible. And this is just one little section of her speech, which is so powerful. Here's what she said. She said, the Bible that you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. She's not minimising or trivialising sin. It's a big deal. The debt is vast. But then, hear this. That is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. You see, even in the worst of sins, even in the darkest of fractures, because Christ paid such a great cost, there's hope, there's forgiveness. And if you echo Matt Hancock's words in your heart, what I'm really looking for is a bit of forgiveness. Let me tell you, I've got great news for you this morning, because I can show you exactly where forgiveness is found. It's found in Jesus and so that beating at the dam of your soul, am I okay, am I okay? Something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. It's released. It's released, it's dealt with, it's gone. Am I okay? Yes, I'm okay, my sin is gone. I'm free. I'm fine. I'm righteous. I'm reconciled to God. Everything is okay. But until you know it's dealt with, and dealt with by Jesus on the cross... You live that fractured life. It's there. It weighs on you. And so, it then transforms us to live a different life. I wonder if you notice as the story goes on that this servant himself has another debt that someone owes to him. And this one is a hundred denarii. Now, again, I've got a footnote in my Bible. A hundred denarii was about, uh, well, well, one denarii was a day's wages for a labourer. So let's say a hundred pound, uh, make the calculation easy. A hundred of those would be 10,000 pound. Now, I was thinking, that's an odd amount to choose for, for the second day. If I was telling this story and I was going for a contrast and I'd started with four billion pounds gets forgiven to you, I'd be thinking, right, we need something really small then to show the contrast. Maybe you refuse to forgive a 50p debt and say, oh yeah, I get it, that's ludicrous. It'd be a better story, wouldn't it, if he chose a smaller number? But he didn't. He said it's £10,000. 
And I think that is significant because what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing this debt, if the first one was our sin against God, well, this one is the sins that other people have committed against us. And so if Jesus had said, right, it's like 50p, well, that would be saying, oh, the sins committed against you, they don't matter, they're small, they're insignificant. He's not saying that. He said, these things do matter, these things are big, and forgiving them isn't cheap and it isn't easy. He's chosen a still sizable amount to reflect that. So we get a repeat of the story. We get the, the second servant who can't afford to pay, who begs and pleads and asks for either an extension to pay it or for the debt to be written off. Only this time, there's no forgiveness. This time, he says, no, I'm going to insist on getting every penny off you. And so the master, the king at the start of the story, he hears about this and he's furious. And that first servant gets taken and put into prison until he pays off his own debt. And then the passage ends with a really sober warning for us, because Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What he's saying is, if you want mercy for yourself, but judgment for those who've wronged you, you can't have it. You can't have it both ways. Are we going to work on a mercy framework or a judgment framework? You receive mercy, and so you give mercy. As others wrong you, you're to be just as ready to extend forgiveness to them as God has been to extend forgiveness to you. And so I just want to pick back up that quote from Rachel Dan Hollander because I stopped partway through her speech. But here's what she said after to the coach. She said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. You see, she knows what it is to have been forgiven by God, and so she can extend forgiveness even to the one who's wronged her. Let's talk about what it is to forgive, or more precisely, let's talk about what it isn't, because we can sometimes get a bit confused and mixed up about forgiveness. First thing that you need to know is that forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting about what's happened. And we see that in the story because this king, he's forgiven the debt, but later in the story, he's still aware of it and it still informs his actions, right? To forgive someone doesn't mean you have to wipe out of your memory the fact this has happened. It doesn't mean you have to act as though it never did. It doesn't mean you have to trust the person. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. And forgiving them doesn't mean going back into the relationship exactly as though nothing had happened. That could put you in a harmful place. It's not a good thing. Forgiveness is different. Forgiveness also doesn't mean people don't face the consequences of their actions. You commit a crime, as the example we've been using shows. You'll face the consequences of your crime forgiven or not. If you're in your workplace and you start stealing stuff, your employer might forgive you and fire you, and they can do both at the same time. You face consequences still, and forgiveness doesn't minimise what happened. It doesn't pretend it's no big deal. Forgiveness also, it's not like a a one-time decision that just um, once it's resolved, it's resolved. It's often something we need to constantly struggle with and keep going back to. Martin Luther King said forgiveness is not an occasional act, it's a constant attitude. So we could think of forgiving others as like a conscious, deliberate decision to release the feelings of resentment or vengeance towards a person or group that's harmed you. 
I can think about a situation where I've been wronged recently. Uh, and here's what I do, right? If you're anything like me, you might do the same thing. You let it get in your head. And you start to stew on it and you play it over and over again. And there's a resentment and there's a a daydreaming about all the ways that you can get your own back and make your life more difficult for the person who's done that thing. At that moment, that's where forgiveness is needed. It's that choice. No, I'm not going to let this live rent-free in my head. I'm not just going to dine on the bitterness of the situation. I'm going to let that go. You see, who's the one that's worse off? when your mind's full of the offence that someone's given to you. You're thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm going to hold this resentment. That'll show them. No, it won't. They won't even know that you're thinking about that, more likely than not. It's you. You're the one that's worse off as a result. And when you forgive, it's like your mind is released from it. I heard forgiveness being described as like releasing a prisoner only to find that that prisoner is you. I think that's a powerful thing. Hannah Moore says that forgiveness saves the expense of anger, the cost of hatred, and the waste of spirits. The gospel, and we've been talking this morning about the gospel. It's a beautiful thing, it's a powerful thing, it's a transformative thing. It reaches to even the worst of sins and to the depths of depravity. It brings healing and restoration, both in the one who's doing the forgiving and in the one who's being forgiven. It's exactly what we need to put our world back together again. Bitterness can never heal the fractures in our heart or in our world. But forgiveness can. Praise God.